Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Coming to you from the other London, let's start the show. Good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to another edition of GradCast, the official radio show of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University, where we highlight the research of our university's graduate students every other Tuesday at 6 p.m. And today we have with us Christopher Rastrick. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. Um, Chris did his undergrad in political science from Western in 2012. He then did his master's in politics and government from the very prestigious London School of Economics in 2013. And since then, he's been doing his PhD here at Western, uh, where he studies different political think tanks in the US and Europe. So Chris, tell us about think tanks. What are they? What do they do? And we'll take it from there. Well, Talking about think tanks uh, obviously begs the question, what are we talking about? And the problem is, a lot of scholars have faced difficulty in agreeing on what a think tank actually is. So we can go with a pretty conventional definition, let's say, a public policy institute interested in matters of imminent policy interest, seeking to disseminate academic research to a public policy community and the broader public more generally. But that only gets us so far. Because if we look at think tanks around the world, we can see there are varied degrees of independence, or even in some cases, dependence on the governments they seek to impact. And furthermore, it might be tempting to see a think tank and an interest group, or a lobby group, for example, as being pretty similar on the face of it. You have to really dig deep and look at what think tanks are actually doing to be able to distinguish these organizations from, let's say, lobby or interest groups. Mm -hmm. So that's the main challenge that think tank scholars have faced from the very beginning, is what are we talking about when we say a think tank? And um, you you are sort of studying the differences between American think tanks and think tanks in the European Union, right? So tell tell us about those differences. Absolutely. When we look at American think tanks, here we have an institutional climate that has witnessed the largest growth and largest number of think tanks in the world. At any given time over the past few years, given fluctuations in the number of think tanks, there have been approximately 1,800 uh, in operation. That's throughout the U.S. In Washington, D.C. alone, we can count about 400 at any given time. And then compare that to the EU, my other area of analysis, where in Brussels, for example, I can only count about 22 of these organizations that might be classified as think tanks. So you have two very fundamentally different environments for think tanks to uh, function. And of course, this isn't by coincidence or happenstance. Uh, There are very deep-seated reasons for this. I myself have uh, analyzed these organizations and feel that an institutional and political culture approach is the best way to actually understand why U.S. and EU think tanks differ. All right, Chris, so to get a better better idea of sort of what think tanks are and what they do, um, would it be possible for you to give us an example of one um, specific think tank and tell us a little bit about what their goals are, what they're trying to accomplish? Absolutely. So, of course, we are not immune from having think tanks in Canada. We have quite a number here. Um, But if we look just south of the border to the U.S., 
That's where the most visible and arguably the most successful think tanks have emerged and thrived. Let's take, for example, the Heritage Foundation, a think tank created in the early 70s by Ed Fulner and Paul Weyrich. The Heritage Foundation was seen as a response to what these two founders saw as a preponderance of left-leaning think tanks in the U.S. They said, now wait, where is the voice for the right amongst think tanks in Washington? So they created the Heritage Foundation, which continues today to be one of the largest, most visible, and as some have suggested, the most successful think tanks in the U.S. Uh, They explicitly identify themselves as right-leaning and as advancing the conservative movement which was only bolstered, of course, through the 1980s, where we saw conservatism uh, become quite popular in the U.S., and through the 2000s as well, as neoconservatism came to uh, have a lot of clout. Okay, so you mentioned that the Heritage Foundation is one of the most successful think tanks in the U.S. Can you give us some idea of what that means? What is successful? Right, exactly. So it's one thing to identify what think tanks do, what they seek to do, what avenues they use to impact public policy and policymakers and the public. It's another thing to actually discuss how successful they are, how they measure their success. And in the U.S., what we have seen is an extreme push towards quantification of their outputs and activities. They like numbers. So in any given think tank's annual report or marketing materials, they're going to inevitably include a section of number by the numbers, for example, most think tanks will employ that. It's near ubiqu- ubiquitous these days. So, for example, the number of media citations they have, the number of times their scholars have appeared on major news outlets, the number of times their scholars have testified before congressional committees and subcommittees, those are activities which lend very well to quantification. It's very easy for a think tank to say, okay, our scholars appeared X many times on these outlets. Our scholars appeared X many times before these committees. And that is used to attract donors and to lure donors into think tanks by saying, hey, here we are able to actually have an impact on policymaking and public policy. You can see it through our numbers. We are making an impact and we are successful. We would like you to donate to our cause. That is where the locus exists for think tanks in terms of their activities and why they have pushed quantification so far. Um, what about how, how would you define a success in a European Union think tank? So, uh, you know, in, uh, do they also have this push for quantitative sort of analysis or how is it different uh, in the EU? Well, that was one of the main things that drew me towards this comparative element with the EU is that they have essentially shirked the American model. They have said implicitly, not so much explicitly, but they have said, we do not want to do this. This is not healthy for public policy debate. This is not constructive for advancing a healthy argument and discussion on the future of the EU. So what they've done is they've actually seen as their main role uh, networking. They want to facilitate policy networks amongst private and public actors. Although corporations, civil society actors, lobby groups, they can have their input into the EU through formal policy making, through formal consultative mechanisms, what EU think tanks are able to do is say this, you can come to our events, you can come to our opportunities for networking, where there's no formal processes, there's uh, no lineup essentially, you have the opportunity to engage directly with policymakers through our events. And that in itself can be seen as a kind of second-order lobbying for think tanks 
um, in the EU. A corporation doesn't have to go directly to the institutions of the EU itself. They can instead go to a think tank and interact with policymakers there. Um, you know, you, you know, in, in in both cases, you know, you've been mentioning things about donors and and, and funding, right? Um, you know, how how transparent are the processes or the decision making processes in both American and EU uh, think tanks? And you know, um, how much of the decisions sort of actually trickle down and affect you know a graduate student like me? or you know the the london transit bus driver right how how much how much of that dialogue actually takes place well we've seen that to different extents between the us and the eu in the us there is great emphasis on the grassroots level us think tanks want to demonstrate evidence that their message is being received loud and clear at the individual level so they tailor their research, they tailor their outputs, and they even, even tailor their public events to those individuals. In the EU, however, there is almost no emphasis on the individual. They are interested almost exclusively in organizations, in corporations, and how they can interact with the EU policymaking apparatus. So you see right there, there's a very marked uh, discrepancy between these two organizational models. Mm-hmm individualist in the U.S. and more organizational and more corporate in the EU. So to answer your question, uh, a bus driver, for example, wouldn't be able to list uh, probably a single think tank operating in Brussels. Mm -hmm. In the U.S., though, uh, that's possibly not the case, where individuals from the most extreme uh, situations in the U.S. are able to not only list, Mm -hmm. but perhaps even offer an insightful opinion on uh, the U.S. think tank model. Um, You know, uh, it's actually interesting. Uh, The Economist, uh, some time back, they wrote this this, this line where it said that think tanks in Brussels are falling falling prey to the European Union's non-confrontational culture of consensus, right? So uh, do you think this this is going to change in the coming uh, few years, for example, given, you know, uh, you know, all the political upheaval that's happening in terms of, for example, the immigration uh, situation or even uh, Brexit, for example, right? So, so, so what do you think of those things? I don't see it changing. And that's because the EU think tanks operate within a very distinct political culture, and that, of course, is a European political culture. Mm -hmm. And I believe that that is very stable, despite uh, increasing uh, severity of political events in the EU, uh, notwithstanding what you just mentioned, of course, the uh, unfortunate economic situation that Europe still, in large part, is recovering from. Mm -hmm. Um, That has not altered uh, the ethos of EU think tanks and the political culture within which they operate. Okay. The Economist was very right to note that the consensus-driven model of European political culture, it has stunted the competitiveness of EU think tanks. They simply don't have an incentive to go head-to-head with each other, unlike in the US. In fact, they might even have a disincentive. E- European political culture does not welcome that hyper-competitiveness, that tete-a-tete that extreme uh, acrimonious uh, disposition that marks American political culture, that absolute polarization politically, especially in partisan circles, that simply is not manifest within Brussels. And EU think tanks 
arguably suffer because of that or, on the other hand, benefit from that. Because they are able to be more consensus-driven, they can focus uh, on those activities and outputs which are able to bring disparate policymakers, private actors, and the public together. So I actually have a question on, on the European Union side. So what is um, is there a different aspect with the fact that since the European Union is a state conglomerate, like that um, these think tanks have to know that they're working with different legal systems in different countries and also, as like we kind of discussed a little bit before the show, um, different cultures and different attitudes towards like we talked about how the EU Parliament is kind of very different from or, or has like its own culture that maybe people in European countries might not agree with. And it's like, I'd be interested if like the different contexts means that they have to play a more uh, tight game or a more uh, political game. I'm not sure. I could right, right. Well, the reality is EU think tanks are not the only players in the game. Um, there have long been think tanks in the EU's member states before Brussels-based think tanks emerged. Think tanks that I study, which are in Brussels and I call supranational think tanks, they're a very recent phenomenon. They have really only earnestly uh, come into existence beginning in the mid-1980s. We see a few before that, but only up until recently has it become possible to talk about a Brussels think tank community. So in that sense, they have largely avoided engaging in national-level dialogues because that is taken care of by national-level think tanks. So a Brussels-based think tank, for example, would have very little to gain by engaging in, let's say, the Brexit debate uh, in a very political sense. Of course, they might want to consider what the implications are institutionally for the EU as their main constituency, but they probably would not proffer an opinion on that. Similarly, they wouldn't... uh, feel it uh, opportune to intrude into any of the other 27 member states uh, domestically. Their field of vision is the EU as a super state actor. You can you can paint the EU however you want, whether it's, it is a genuine state or whether it's just a conglomeration, like you said. But regardless of uh, how you stand on that, EU think tanks are only focused on what is actually happening in Brussels. They really don't look beyond that to the extent... Um, that they would intrude in domestic uh, matters. Of course, they're concerned with how the EU acts internationally, and the EU does act uh, with international actorhood. We've seen that in increasing importance, uh, especially through multilateral fora. Mm -hmm. But they're largely inclined to avoid engaging in debate at the national level. It simply doesn't serve their interest. Uh, Does that include, like, Brussels think tanks and and? Brussels think tanks, right? Um, <laughs> if you know what I mean, <laughs> I know exactly what you mean, and that, of course, uh, raises questions because uh, the think tanks in Brussels that I study are not the only think tanks in Brussels. Uh, there are Belgian think tanks uh, that focus on Belgian issues, and of course, it's very tempting to assume that what happens in Brussels really is a reflection of what happens in the EU. They become so intertwined, but of course, uh, I would remind us all that. Uh, Brussels is an independent (laughs) state with its own actorhood and its own sovereignty uh, to the extent that EU law allows. Um, And there are Brussels-based think tanks focusing on Belgian issues. Um, But it's it's a very funny situation I find myself in when talking about think tanks in Belgium. I have to be very specific as to what organizations I'm actually referring to. 
Right. So, Chris, you mentioned that these EU-level think tanks in Brussels are like a fairly recent development. Um, can you give us any sort of history of think tanks as a whole? Is that idea sort of like a newish modern one, or has it, you know, been a part of politics and sort of policy debates for a long time? Sure. Well, if we look to, for example, the UK and the US. Uh, they have a lengthy history of think tanks, uh, certainly not as uh, augmented as it is today. Like I said, uh, the 1,800 think tanks operating in the U.S. alone uh, have not always been around. But we can trace think tanks um, to the late 1800s in the U.S. and U.K. potentially. So they have been relatively stable features of American and uh, British civil society. Now, in the EU, uh, like I mentioned, that is simply not the case. What happened in the late 1980s is that scholars, pundits, analysts, outspoken politicians challenged the democratic legitimacy of the EU. They started saying, okay, we have all these democratic conditions that are required for potential member states to become members of the EU. Very rigid democratic standards. But the EU itself, the institutions of the EU, are simply not actually engaging with these democratic standards that they're expecting of their potential member states. So these analysts and scholars and pundits, they started saying, okay, EU, it's time to actually, you know, do what you preach. It's time to democratize. And what became referred to as the democratic deficit debate included a sweeping a uh, variety of institutional changes at the EU level. One of these changes was the inclusion of civil society actors into decision-making that happens in Brussels. So the EU Commission now constitutionally has to welcome the input of think tanks, of interest groups, of corporations under Article 11 of the Treaty on the European Union. So that changed the game for think tanks and especially so for corporations and lobby groups, where unlike in the U.S., where these organizations have to fight very difficult uh, battles to get their voices heard loud and clear by politicians, in the U.S. it's the reverse. Politicians are actually fighting to have uh, the voices of corporations, of think tanks, of lobby groups heard. They want that input. Um. Chris, uh, let, let's take a detour from your uh, work as a graduate student, life as a graduate student. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned was your interest in folk music. Yes. Right? And which I found uh, interesting and in hindsight obvious given your interest in, in politics because, uh, you know, folk music and folk songs have sort of always been uh, concurrent with, with political ideology and uh, th- those subjects, right? So, um, so, so tell us uh, about that. Well, notwithstanding the absolute beauty of the music. Of course, of course. Uh, yeah. Which I still manages to amaze me today. I, I myself play guitar and uh, am constantly uh, struggling to uh, find just the right chord or just the, just the right note that, uh, that happens in some of these songs. But it's very true that folk music has been concurrent with political events and more often than not political instability. Mm-hmm. So we see in the U.S. in particular the 1960s pushing into the 1970s even, uh, an era of great political turmoil and great socio-political upheaval. Yeah. Uh, folk music was a, a very large element in that, in my opinion. Um, you think of March on Washington, you think of political speeches, you think of 
um, you know, left-leaning politicians having their voices heard, when in reality, large portions of those gatherings were musical. A lot of uh, the, the time there was actually dedicated to song. And uh, when you study the history of, let's say, Peter, Paul, and Mary, uh, Joan Baez, even Neil Young to some extent, um, you can see that there is a deep infusion of political elements into their songs and uh, translates into their activism. Now, of course, that comes under some critique from uh, listeners who say that they were essentially sold a musical bill of goods, mm -hmm. and then they fell prey to a bait-and-switch where uh, these musicians would produce such beautiful music, but then leverage that for political ends. Uh, a classic bait-and-switch, some might say. But uh, I still remain <laughs> very engaged to the music, uh, for the musicality of it, and of course, uh, the unavoidable political dimension, which we don't seem to see much today. Um, speaking of that, you mentioned that you want to, once you're done your PhD, you'd like to begin working for a think tank here in the U in Canada or in the U.S. So, uh, can you tell us, you know, one or two issues uh, that are really close to your heart that you would want to tackle as soon as you start working, or something that that you think needs immediate attention? Oh, where do you begin? <laughs> <laughs> well. Um, my main area of interest uh, belongs to foreign policy and to how, let's say, Canada relates to the rest of the world. And uh, I think there's still, a, an, I think there's still a very large question as to what role Canada should and ought to play uh, in the 21st century. I don't think there's unanimous agreement, or perhaps there never will be unanimous agreement. But I think we need to carve out a template or a framework that will maximize Canada's interests in the foreign policy realm. Because I think uh, right now we don't have a very clear idea of what direction Canadian foreign policy should take. Are we going to be more isolationist, let's say, and perhaps uh, remove ourselves from some of the alliances that had at one point served us quite well? Are we going to further ingratiate ourselves in these international communities? Or are we going to perhaps devise a third way? I think there are some great questions that still exist for what role Canada can and should play uh, going forward. That's an area that I have great interest in. So, uh, you know, continuing on this, this tangent of sort of personal interests and possibly prospects of employment, mm -hmm. um, what are, you know, what are some ways that perhaps um, graduating students scholars, um, people with advanced degrees, how could we perhaps get involved in um, working with think tanks or to become employed by a think tank? <laughs> that sounds nice, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, think tanks in Canada and the U.S. in particular have become very, very good at offering fantastic internship opportunities for students at the undergraduate level in particular, and even at the graduate level, certainly. I think that's a great opportunity for, let's say, political science students, but not just political science students, um, students from all disciplines and all faculties to get involved um, in the think tank world, because it's a fantastic platform for not only conducting research, 
but conducting research that has a meaningful impact on the day-to-day lives of individuals, or at the very least, can help regulate the public policy discussions and debates. I don't think, I could not think of anything more interesting and more impactful than being able to have a stake in the direction of a policy debate. And whether you come from a science background, there are think tanks that welcome scientists. Whether you come from an engineering background, think tanks that welcome engineers. It's not just a game for political scientists, and I think people should be aware of that. Are any uh, think tanks currently using the power of folk music to further <laughs> their, uh, you know, their ends? They aren't, but I think uh, you just carved out a unique opportunity for me. Yeah, yeah. there you go. <laughs> well, excellent. So, um, uh, uh, Chris, you mentioned that you you've had the good fortune of uh, you know being a well-traveled person, right? You've right. mentioned uh, you know your your time in various parts in Europe, in the Middle East, and Latin America. So, any 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 long-lasting impressions that have made a mark, um, you know, with you, or any 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 memories that are wow. Um yeah, like you said, I have had the great fortune of traveling extensively. And two things stand out, uh, two contradictory things stand out. Uh, one, that this world is filled with such unique stories, with such unique climates, such unique perspectives on life. Um, that is something that stands out incredibly to me, uh, that people can be so different and so diverse. And then on the other hand, the more I travel the more I also realize that people fundamentally are the same. We can think and acknowledge that there are gross differences between, let's say, myself here in London and then go to Beirut, Lebanon, where I've had the privilege of traveling. You can think that there is such enormous difference, and to be sure there is, but there is also enormous commonality, and I think that gets overlooked a lot. That's as good a way to end as any. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Chris. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, so, grad, uh, sorry, GradCast is a production of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. If you, like Chris boldly did, want to come and talk about your research for everyone to hear, please get in touch with us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Honestly, we love getting new people, and summer is open. We have openings as soon as next week, so come on. Bring up, come out and uh, uh, get yourself heard. And, of course... Um, Stay safe out there, London. I hear it's snowing for some reason. Keep it going. (laughs) Take care. That's all we got for this week. If you like this episode, share it with someone. Check us all out on Twitter and Facebook. Both you can find through Gradcast Radio. You can go to our website to see more episodes at gradcastradio.ca. And if you want to come on the show and talk about your own research, great line for your CV, go to gradcastradio at gmail.com. The theme is Happy Boy by Kevin McLeod, and we will see you guys next time. Thank you.